This morning, we get to continue on in our uh, His Story series, and uh, I want to ask, how many of you here love movies? Okay, I am not alone. Yes, good. Uh, I, I love movies. Uh, just about every Sunday night, uh, I finish out my week by watching a movie. We get the boys to bed, and usually Leanne and I stay up. Sometimes Megan will join us, uh, and we, we get to stay up and watch movies. And we've seen some really good ones and some not-so-good ones. And I've discovered that some of the differences between the good ones and the not-so-good are, are things like actually a good story. You know, that, that makes a big difference. If it's just nothing but things blowing up, I know some people love that, but man, I, I, I need a story in it. I need to know why the things are blowing up. Uh, you know, good acting, um, great cinematography. I, I'm a bit of an artist, and so I love seeing, you know, great filmmaking, uh, good directing. I just, I really appreciate all of that. But one thing that can also set a movie apart, at least for me, is originality. I, I really appreciate it when a filmmaker attempts to do something new, but that's a risk. A lot of the movies that are out there, that they try to do something new, it just doesn't catch on. It ends up being so kind of weird and different that it just can never enter the mainstream, and it's just a small little demographic of people who really seem to like it. But every once in a while, a new, fresh, original idea will come along, and it will just capture the hearts of people. Back in the 70s, Star Wars. It was totally different than any other space-type movie out there. And it just captured the hearts of people because it had the action that the guys love with lightsabers and the force, and yet it had this really strange soap opera going on that the women really liked. It was just, it was original. It was different. Another one, uh, Blair Witch Project. I've never seen it. I don't like horror movies, uh, but that one with its kind of found footage at, uh, approach and the way they marketed it, it, it went totally viral before viral was a thing. And it was very unique and different, and it kept, made 200 and some million dollars when it only cost, I think, like $60,000 to make. I mean, it just it was a, it was a huge hit. Uh, and another one uh, was Boyhood. This is one that I want to see. I've not seen it yet. But they filmed this movie over 12 years. They had the same exact cast, and you basically watch a boy grow up into a man. And it's a fictionalized story, but yet you have these actors who they would get together for two, three, four weeks at a time every single year, shoot some scenes, and then they'd go off and do other projects and come back the next year. 12 years, a very unique vision for a movie. And then, of course, you got to mention Napoleon Dynamite. I mean, there is nothing else like it out there. It was so strange and weird. People either loved it or hated it. I loved it. It was so original, so unique. Yeah, it had no plot, I know. It, it fails on the story into things. All right, but it was so unique, it, it, and it worked. It was a huge hit. All of these movies became just these hit, and, and it's because they were like the first the, the originality about them just helps hook them into the hearts of people. And we end up loving these movies. But what happens is so often when we see a movie that we really, really like, then we hear they're going to make a sequel. And we get so excited. I mean, we get elated. We can't wait to watch this thing. And we go into that theater and we walk out bummed. Like, it just Failed. I mean, like, how many people loved The Matrix in 1999 and then wondered what happened with movies two and three? I mean, it just didn't make sense. How could you go from that to those? Or how many kids 
We're hooked into cars only to get totally let down by Cars 2. I mean, what was that thing? I'm hoping Cars 3 really redeems this franchise. We get so excited about the original that the sequel just can't measure up. It, it happens when we learn about a new band. We hear their, their breakout album, and we love it. We listen to that thing on repeat, and then they kind of have a sophomore slump. We do that with authors and their books. We, we do this in all sorts of areas. We, we find something new. It really grabs a hold of us. We love it. And then the second, it just doesn't seem as good. And so we're left to believe that the first is the best. But we don't just apply this into like movies and music and books. This gets applied in all sorts of places. Anyone know someone who still can't get over their first boyfriend or girlfriend, even though they're married to someone else? How many people still are kind of attached to that very first job or, or their first car or the first house they lived in? We get these firsts in our lives and we start to believe that it's actually the best. And when we start to see a second come along, it just, just doesn't measure up because we believe that first is better. And to be second, eh, it's only second best. When you throw into the mix religion, how many times have you heard that you need to put God first? And you go into the scriptures and you see that God wants the firstborn to be dedicated to him. That in our offering, we're to give our first fruits. You know, that when we receive income from our you know, jobs, that we take the first portion of that and we give that to God. We live in this idea of first, that the first is the best. But today we're going to actually look and see how sometimes second is best. I've been noticing a pattern throughout the scriptures over the past several years. This pattern keeps emerging where the second is actually better than the first. And we've already seen it in this His Story series. When we went and looked at Cain and Abel, Cain was born first, but Abel was the one who really followed God. Or Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn, and yet both the blessing and the right to the firstborn got transferred over to Jacob. Abraham, he has two sons, two different wives. Ishmael's born first, and yet Isaac, the second, is the child of promise. I could go on. We see this pattern over and over in the scriptures. That sometimes the first isn't the best. Actually, sometimes the first helps get you ready for the second. And the second is the best. And we're going to see this pattern yet again today. And we're going to see it in the establishment of the first king of Israel. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 Samuel. If you're not quite sure where 1 Samuel is, uh, there's a little cheat sheet up on the screen for you. Um, but as you get ready to turn to 1 Samuel, let me just pray for our time in the Word. Oh, holy God, we are coming now to these uh, scriptures that have been around a lot longer than any of us and will continue to be here for after we have gone. And so I pray that right now you would help us to not read this through just a 21st century filter, but that instead we would come to it realizing that it supersedes time, it supersedes culture, and you have things here for us. And so, Lord, help us today to not just try to read into this what we want. Instead, let us hear what you have in it for us, because you want to lead and guide us to become more and more like Christ. 
And so, Father, I pray that you would help each and every one of us today to see this pattern, that how sometimes second is better so that we can trust you when our plan A's, when our firsts fail, so that we grow in our trust and we can see that even though it didn't work out the way we wanted, that our best days are yet to come. So, Father, I pray that you would encourage us today through this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we're coming to 1 Samuel, uh, last week we were in the book of Ruth. Uh, we looked at her story, uh, the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And what we learned was that their story took place during the time of the judges. Even though we skipped the whole book of judges, we're still getting one story there. And now we're coming to the end of the era of the judges. Samuel is this great prophet, and he's acting as the judge for Israel. But he's starting to get older And so he actually names some judges, his sons, but it isn't working out very well. Join me, 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Uh, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. You see, God had intentionally set up Israel differently. He didn't want them looking and acting like the other nations because they followed the one true God. So God was supposed to be their king. So because they have God as their king, they don't need an earthly king They've already got God. So they just needed these judges to kind of help steer them along. These prophets to help bring the word from their king to help guide them. But the people looked at the other nations and felt inferior. Rather than thinking their difference actually set them apart, they thought it made them less. And so they wanted to look like the others. Because if they had a king, they had a powerful king, then the other nations would respect them more. They thought that by getting a king, it would kind of fix their problems. Any of you ever been there? Where where you think that by getting something else, it'll just kind of make everything all better? That if, if you just get a different boyfriend or girlfriend, if you would just get a different job, if you would just get a new car, then, oh, things will be so much better. We, we buy into the lie that the grass is greener on the other side Of the fence. And yet, it doesn't work out. Samuel's grieved when they ask for a king. And surprisingly, God says, You know what? Give it to them. They think it's gonna solve everything, they think it's gonna make it all better. I'm just gonna let them learn the hard way. So Samuel tries to warn them. Join me down in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. 
And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. He's trying to say, guys, you don't want this. The taxes are so high. You don't want to pay. You don't want this. But notice the response of the people. Verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They thought to be strong, They thought to be respected, they needed a king. And to them, the taxes were worth it. It was worth sacrificing their children, their servants, their land, their produce, just so they could have strength. Which means that they couldn't just have anyone as king. I mean, they couldn't take a short little nerdy guy like me and put me in. I mean, it would not be impressive. They needed someone strong, strapping, handsome, And they think they found the guy. We meet him in chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Only when I hang out with third graders do I understand that last verse. Tall people, they get respect. It's not like they did anything to get tall. It was just genetics, but somehow they seem to get more respect. And he's taller than everyone else, and he's handsome. You're good looking. Oh, man, people want to be around you. They like you immediately. I mean, you can be an absolute jerk, and yet people will still put up with you because, hey, you're good looking. This guy has it all. He is impressive. And if you could have an impressive guy like that, whoa. Your country will then look impressive. But when we meet Saul, he's not a king yet. He's just a son. And one day, his family's donkeys get lost. And so he grabs one of his servants and says, all right, we got to go find him. And so they take off into the wilderness to go find him. And they search for days. Pretty soon, they realize, we're not going to find him. And so if we don't head back soon, they're not going to worry about lost donkeys. They're going to think we're dead. So we better head home. But the servant says, hey, before we head home, there's a city right over here. In this city is a seer, a prophet. If anyone can tell us where our donkeys are, it's him. So tell you what, I I got a little bit of silver. Let's just go in. We'll pay him the silver. We'll ask him where the donkeys are. He'll tell us. We'll go find him, and we'll come home with the donkeys, and we'll be the heroes. So I was like, all right, last-ditch effort. Let's do it. So they walk into town, and something really strange happens. Stay there in chapter 9. Skip over to verse 14. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel, the prophet, coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow, about this time, 
I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Well, when Samuel saw, uh, sorry, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, he is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. And then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, "Uh, tell me, where's the house of the seer? And Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. All right, now I want you to imagine this for just a second. You've been searching for days. You're thinking, I have no idea where these are at. Someone says there's a fortune teller in the city. If it were me, I'd be rolling my eyes like, uh, yeah, right. But they're desperate, so they go into town. And before they can even ask the guy, hey, do you know where the donkeys are? We could pay you a little bit of silver. The guy says, hey, great to see you. I, I want to eat a meal with you, and uh, we're going to uh, uh, do it over here. Oh, and by the way, those donkeys you're looking for, don't, don't worry about them. They've already been found. I think my jaw would drop and be like, what in the world? But that's not even the weirdest thing. They end up doing dinner. Did my microphone just die? No? It's there? Okay. So they end up doing dinner, they have a good night's sleep, and then they get together, and this happens. Chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? He's just announced, you're going to be king. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? And then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Uh, three men going up to, God, up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gilbeath Elohim, and there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you And you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And now, when these signs meet you, do what your right hand finds to do, for God is with you. Now listen to this. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Can you imagine? You show up just trying to find some donkeys, and you walk away a king. You you think you're just going to have a meal, and you have oil poured on your head. You think, I'm just going to get to go back to my life as I know it, and suddenly you're told, oh yeah, these people are going to tell you, hey, your dad's worried about you. Oh, and then after that, as you get to the certain tree, you're going to meet these three people, and they're going to have these goats and this bread, and and this is going to happen, and then you're going to run into these other people. And then it happens. Could you imagine what's going through Saul's head? 
Never in his wildest dreams did he think he would become king of Israel. There had never been a king before. He wasn't, you know, even close to becoming one of the judges. He was just a guy. And yet he's now told, you get to be king. And as a sign to you, these things are going to happen. Wouldn't you like to think that if you had a moment where you sensed God speak to you, and he says something about your future, and then you see that happen, wouldn't you think that would absolutely cement your faith? Like, that would be it. Like, if, I said, if God said, hey, I'm going to do this for you, and then it happened, I think I'd be going, oh my goodness, there is a God. I will follow him for the rest of my life. I will never sin again. And then usually within about two, three weeks, you know, you're right back to where you were. It's exactly what happens to Saul. Saul has this miraculous moment, but he ends up failing. There comes a moment where he gets presented to the people as king. It's still here in chapter 10, over in verse 24. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. All they could see was this incredibly tall, handsome guy from a rich family. He looked the part. They're so hungry. They're so ready. Yes, we will name this guy our king. But they have no idea the kind of character that is underneath. You see, as he gets named king, he's got to do what kings do. He goes to war. And they actually have some initial success. They, they head off, and, and they fight some, some uh, of their enemies. They, they win. But their worst enemy were the Philistines. The Philistines were the metal workers in their, their area. The, the Philistines would create swords and shields and the plows and, and all the, the things that people would use, whether it's in war or agriculture. And because they were the ones who did it and were so good at it, they always made sure to arm their army so that every soldier had a sword and everyone had a, a shield. But for their enemies, they would charge exorbitant amounts of money. In fact, later in chapter 13, you learn that at one point, Israel only has two swords, one owned by Saul and one owned by his son, Jonathan. The rest, they were just going in with clubs and plows and whatever they could find to go into battle. But even if they took a plow to the Philistines to get sharpened, they'd still charge them a crazy amount of money. Like, hey, I just need this to farm. Well, that's still going to cost you, you know, $10,000. It was crazy. It was the Philistines' way to keep everyone else subdued. So when Jonathan and a few Israelites, with this new surge of, of, of confidence because they now have a king, they're having some success against their enemies, they go and they fight against a garrison of Philistines, and they win. Philistines' response? Not going to happen again. They muster up their army. Everyone's got arms, and they come ready to go to battle. They gather at Michmash, and they're getting ready to come over to Gilgal. Well, do you remember what Samuel said to Saul on the day he was saying, you will be king? It's back there in chapter 10, verse 8. It says, then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Remember, you've had Samuel 
saying, okay, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and they all happen. So I think on the last one, I'd be going, okay, I'm going to wait. However, when your army, who has no weapons, sees an army that it's loaded with weapons, they outnumber you, you start to get a little scared. The people start fleeing. They start hiding in caves. The army just keeps dwindling down. And Saul begins to panic. Here he is, the new king. He wants to be impressive. And yet, no one seems to trust him. No one thinks they can win. They're leaving, fearing for their lives. And so in a moment of panic, Saul does the unthinkable. We see it here in uh, chapter 13, verse 8. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. What was so wrong about Saul sacrificing the animals? He was a king. He wasn't a priest. That was the role of the priest. That was the role for Samuel to do. Samuel knew this moment was going to happen. God had shown it to him. And so he even said, wait seven days. I'll come down. We'll make these uh, sacrifices, these offerings. We'll gain the Lord's favor. He'll show us what to do, and we will have victory over the Philistines. Because he looked at his circumstances. He looked at his situation. He freaked out. So he thought, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. So I'm going to seek the Lord's favor, and I'm going to do the role of the priest. He couldn't even obey the one command. All of that, and the day that he was announced, you're going to become king, he didn't have to do anything except one thing. Everything else was just, you're going to meet these people, and they're going to say this, you're going to meet these people, they're going to give you this, this is going to happen. But then, after all of that confirms, all you have to do is wait. And he couldn't do it. Saul was Israel's plan A. They thought if they had a king, everything would be better. This was the plan they put in place. If we could just have a king, we will be strong, we will get this, we'll get that, we'll be respected, we will be impressive. But instead, their plan A failed. Plan A couldn't even wait just a few more minutes. Plan A couldn't just trust God. Plan A just allowed itself to get mired by the circumstances. And so plan A failed. Almost all of us have plans. Whether it be plans for today, plans for next year, plans for a decade from now, 
Many of us, we're making plans. And yet many times those plans don't work out. You had certain plans of how long you're going to be in a job. And when the company had to close, those plans changed. You had plans of getting married, having a certain number of kids. But then infertility, death, other things. Those plans didn't work out. You had plans for a certain major in college, and then you had that one professor. You had, you had plans for certain things, and yet these circumstances happened. Suddenly, plan A failed. And when plan A fails, we often feel like we have failed. But we are the failures. Because first is best. And because the first failed, I'm missing out on the best. Remember the pattern. Sometimes first is merely there to help set up what is actually best. It's to prepare us for second. Did you hear it inside of Samuel's words? I mean, the words were devastating to Saul, but there was hope. Because he said, even as Saul has disobeyed God, he says, God has a man after his own heart. God already had a plan in place. Because it turns out that Saul was not plan A. He was actually plan B. God had another plan, a better plan. He had the best in mind. So let's go and meet this other plan. It's found in chapter 16. Start in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And so Samuel gets on the donkey, takes off to Bethlehem, and they are going to hold like this little worship service. And uh, dad's supposed to just bring the boys by. And he brings, obviously, his firstborn son. Because remember, first is best. So he brings his firstborn. Notice it in verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Ha surely the Lord's anointed is before him. It's interesting, isn't it? Samuel sees Eliab and has the same reaction that Israel had when they saw Saul. He looks the part. But notice God's response, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We as humans do this all the time. We judge based on outward appearance. We judge women, girls, on how pretty they are. We judge guys on how tall they are or how buff they are. We judge people based on what types of shirts or jeans or shoes they're wearing, what type of car they drive, what type of house they live in. We judge so much on the externals. And yet, the best marriages are not the, best, are, are not the ones where you've got the two most gorgeous people together. How many Hollywood uh, divorces have there been? Tons. They're all these great-looking people. They've got all the wealth. They've got the stature. They've got all these things, and yet they don't get what they're really looking for. The best marriages are those, there's friendship. There's respect. They know each other deep inside. They've moved beyond the outward and gotten to the heart. And that's what God is saying. God sees you just as you are. That's why it's so foolish to try and dress up to impress God. 
That's why it's ridiculous to try and fill your prayers with a bunch of really big flowery words when all he wants is you and your raw honesty. It's silly to try and think that we could somehow impress God by how much we drop into an offering bag. He's not going for your outward appearance. He wants to change you from the inside out. So it's letting the gospel get in because that's what matters. And that's what he's pushing to Samuel and to Israel. So this is what takes place. Eliab's been rejected. So verse 8. So then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. I suddenly feel like I'm watching the epi- an episode of The Bachelorette. I, it's like, nope, he's not the one. Nope, not the guy. He's definitely not Mr. Right. I mean, it's just like these guys keep getting rejected. And, and then suddenly, I love that you just could imagine the original readers. They're, they're building the tension. Nope, it's not him. Nope, it's not him. And get through all seven. It's like, none of them is the right one. And, and then suddenly he says, are all your boys here? Like, do you have any more kids? Well, yeah, there's, there's one more, the youngest. I mean, he's, he's just a teenager. Like, he, he's not kingly. He, he, there's no way. I mean, that's why he's out with the sheep, so that we could bring the other boys here. And then to add to the tension, Samuel says, go get him. Like, we're, we're just going to stay here. And in fact, we're not even going to sit down. We're going to stay standing. And it's like they take a commercial break. You know, and some, some guy comes out and pedals, you know, OxyClean for your sheep. You know, get them as white as snow. And they just got to stand around waiting. Who knows how long it took? I mean, the servant had to go out. Go get him. Who knows how far he was? They're standing and they're standing an hour, two hours. And all of a sudden, this teenage boy starts walking into camp. And this is what it says about him. Verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. I love this scene. We do not hear David's name until almost the end of the sentence. You don't hear his name until you know that the Spirit of the Lord has rushed upon him. Because we've discovered that the most important thing about him is not his name. The most important thing about him was not that he was healthy, that he was handsome. It's not even how young he is. The most important thing about him is that he is a man after God's own heart. He was the best. He was the one. Saul was plan A. David is going to look like plan B, but he wasn't. He was God's plan A all along. Saul is the original. He's the first. You would think he's the best. But to keep with the pattern, we discovered that no. The first has to fail so that we can discover the best. So there's the pattern. We see once again that the first is not the best, but sometimes second is actually best. 
Now, this totally messes with us, all right? Because when we watch the Olympics, we usually celebrate the gold medal. That those are the people we remember. I mean, we could sit there and say, oh, yeah, we know who won the most gold medals of all time, Michael Phelps. Yeah, but can you tell me the people who got silver behind him? Unless you're an avid swimming fan, probably not. Silver tends to get forgotten. We think that silver isn't as good. And yet in God's economy, sometimes silver is better. Sometimes silver is actually the best. Sometimes we have to have our plan A's fail in order for us to get to the place that God really wants us. That's why I want you to walk out of here today with two things. First, I want you to see the biblical pattern. Whether it's Cain to Abel, uh, Esau to Jacob, or Saul to David. I want you to see this pattern. But this pattern isn't just in these micro stories. It's also in the broader story. Remember, we're in the His Story series. And we're discovering how every page points to Jesus. How all of these stories ultimately point to Christ. And the story of Saul and David, it actually points to the greater story of Adam and Jesus. Because just as Saul couldn't obey and follow the one command, Adam couldn't obey and follow the one command. But David, he ended up becoming the king that the people needed and ends up pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the king that we all need. This whole story points to something bigger. And Paul kind of brings this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 47, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, The first man, meaning Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Now, just in case you don't know in the Bible, earth isn't horrible and awful, but heaven's better. All right, this is what we long for. We long for heaven. And the second man, the true man, is from heaven. That's why the same guy, Paul, writing the letter to Rome, Chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, he basically, just to sum it up, it says that through Adam came death, but through Jesus came life. Adam was created in the image of God. He was the son of God. And yet, he gave in to the temptation in the Garden of Eden. And yet, Jesus, the true son of God, does not give in to temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. Adam could only think about himself and what was there in the here and now. Jesus, his whole heart was on the people, and he was thinking further and through and beyond the cross. Adam, through him, came condemnation to all humanity, but through Jesus' death and resurrection came a doorway out of that condemnation, available to all. Jesus is the true and better Adam, and he's also the true and better David. And this pattern helps us to see and remember that while the first, the original, you might think is supposed to be the best, it actually fails in order for us to see what is truly the best, Jesus. But the second thing I want you to walk out of here today is to realize that when your own plan A's don't work, it doesn't mean that you're going to miss out. It doesn't mean that you have failed. Because sometimes your plan A needs to fail so you can get to God's best for you. As a pastor who's, you know, obviously helps to start a church, I tend to hear stories of other guys who've done similar things. And uh, there's a, a pastor and author by the name of Mark Batterson who I've heard his story uh, several times. And I, I'm going to read just a portion of uh, his story to you. 
Mark writes, my first church, <clears throat> sorry, after graduating from Central Bible College in Springfield, Missouri, I attended seminary at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. My dream was to plant a church in the Chicago area. My wife and I grew up in Naperville, a western suburb of Chicago. I loved Chicago-style pizza. And Michael Jordan was still playing for the Chicago Bulls. Why would we want to be anyplace else? So we formed a core group, opened a bank account, and chose a church name. I even put together a 25-year plan. But our core group imploded before we could even hold our first service. Years later, I still have unanswered questions about that first church plant. Were we even called to plant this church? Was our timing off? Did my ineptitude or inexperience cause it to fail? Or did God plan the failure? I came out of this experience with a core conviction. Sometimes our plans have to fail for God's plans to succeed. After Mark's plan A failed, he ended up hearing about an opportunity in D.C., his plan B. <laughs> but plan B looked really, really foolish. I mean, plan B had no salary. Plan B was merely 19 people who wanted to start a church and kind of needed a pastor to help them get it going. Uh, plan B was meeting in a small elementary school that pretty soon, uh, within just a few uh, months of being there, they had to close the school because of there were like fire code violations, like it was a dangerous place. And so just like that, they had no place to meet. And, and then on top of it, his denomination was saying, Mark, you've got to get this to church to 100 people by year one and 200 people by year two, or you're not going to make it. And yet they only averaged 35 their first year. Uh, into year two, they finally broke 100. He was failing on all accounts. Chicago didn't work. The school doesn't work. You've only got 19 people. You've got no salary. This is another failure all the way around. Now, obviously, I'm telling this story because it turned around and changed. Mark today now still pastors the same church, National Community Church. They have eight campuses around the Washington, D.C. area, and they're ministering to thousands of people. But the closing of the school, their plan A, is actually a good thing. Because the only place that was available, he tried multiple options, couldn't find anything. The only place that said yes was the theaters down at Union Station. And pretty soon as they start meeting in the, the movie theater at Union Station, they suddenly start realizing, like, the train comes right here and drops off people. Millions of people come through this area all the time. Like, this is a high-traffic area. We could not have picked a better spot if we'd wanted to. And that ended up shaping their culture, so much so that most of those eight campuses also meet in movie theaters. And just think about it. If his first church plant hadn't imploded, he wouldn't have gone to D.C., if the school hadn't had to close, they probably wouldn't have gone into a theater. These failures actually led them to the best. That's why I want to encourage you. If you've had something fail, a relationship, a job, something else, it's not over. The best is yet to come. As long as you continue to seek after Jesus. So today, I want you to walk out of here realizing Jesus is the best. The biblical pattern shows it. The second is the best. But I also want you walking out of here realizing that even if your plan A's fail, it's not over. Because your plan B might just be God's plan A. And the best is yet to come.
So Father, I pray that you would encourage each and every one of us with these truths, that you would impact us with the knowledge of Jesus and realize that he is truly the best. And that sometimes when things in our lives fail, it's actually for our good because we sometimes will take these other things and we will, in a sense, make those our God. Those will become our kings. We think that we need these things in order to be who everyone else says we should be. And yet when you don't allow us to get that job, when you, when you don't allow us to make that purchase, when you don't allow the relationship to go to the next level, rather than to get mad at you, rather than to get upset, God, help us to be the kind of people who realize that you are God, you are good. And because you love us, you work all things out for our good. You said in Job that you take away and you give. God, help us to know that when you give things, you deserve praise. But even when you take away, when you let our plan A's fail, you still should be praised. So God, we want to do that right now. We want to praise you. Each and every person in this room is at a different place. Some have had incredibly stressful weeks. Uh, some are, are doing wonderful right now. Some are excited about summer. Some are fearful for what is ahead. I just pray that right now you draw each and every one of us to you. That we wouldn't make our lives about our plans. We wouldn't make it about our own personal kings. Instead, we would let Jesus be our king. We would let you guide our steps. And we will trust you no matter what comes our way. So Father, I just pray for your encouraging heart to beat within each and every one of us. And anyone that's here struggling today, that this church family would come alongside of one another, praying for each other, bearing one another's burdens, spurring each other on towards love and good deeds. We would know that we're not alone. So God, thank you for this story. It's hard to see what happened to Saul, but it's encouraging to know that even as you took it from Saul, you had David ready. You had the plan in place. You were sovereign. You're in control. So help us, Father, to trust you even in the worst of our moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.